Today's Bible reading is Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up and the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree withered, the pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn, while you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty, has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness and flames have burned up the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ness. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Scott. If you're uh, new with us today, welcome. It's great to have you with us and uh, we would love to have you around for lunch today if you're able. Uh, I feel like that's the kind of passage that a farmer hears very differently uh, and a bit more keenly to the rest of us. Why don't we pray and ask for God's help? Heavenly Father, thank you for your wonderful word. Uh, Lord, as we read uh, this passage and uh, the confronting nature um, of the trouble and turmoil uh, and tragedy of this world, Lord, we pray that we will see your goodness and your grace, uh, and that this morning uh, you'll fill us with hearts uh, that weep over the state of this world and the results of our sin. 
and who trust and celebrate and rejoice in your goodness. Amen. Well, sometimes the uh, gentle approach just doesn't quite cut it. Uh, have you ever tried to wake up a drunk person? You know, the kind of the little pat on the shoulder, the little squeeze, the little gentle, you know, it's time, it's time to get up. Just, just doesn't quite work, does it? And so if you've got a drunk person who's fallen asleep somewhere dangerous and you, you really need to move them for their own good, you kind of need to step things up a notch, don't you? Uh, I like the kind of, you know, I grew up watching black and white movies and, uh, you know, the, the perfect solution to pretty much everything actually in a black and white movie is just to slap someone in the face. It's amazing how many things it used to fix. I haven't tried it. Uh, but, you know, the slap in the face, the glass of cold water in the face, you know, sometimes you just need to do something drastic for the sake of the person's good for the sake of getting someone out of danger. And in Joel's passage today, God's people were in terrible danger and they weren't responding to gentle words. And so God had to do something drastic to snap them out of their stupor and their sleep. And so that's what God has done. We're going to have a little look. There's an outline there on the backside of uh, your passage. Uh, we'll begin with looking at the turmoil then that they had already experienced in Joel's day. Verse 2, read with me. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? See, we don't know exactly what the this is that Joel describes. We actually don't know anything more about Joel except what we read here, that he was the son of Pethuel. And the only thing we know about Pethuel is that he was the father of Joel. We don't know exactly when Joel was alive. We don't know exactly what time he is speaking into. Uh, we don't know exactly what took place. But we know it must have been pretty big. At least Joel thought it was a bigger tragedy, a bigger thing than he'd ever heard of. I mean, have a look at the ways that Joel describes the turmoil that the people of Judah are going through. Verse 4, locusts who've eaten everything. Verse 6, an invading nation. Verse 9, an end to sacrifices in the temple. Verse 10, verse 20, drought. Verse 12, a desperation. Verse 16, a famine. Verse 19, a fire. That's sounding pretty tragic, isn't it? Now, Joel is kind of deliberately vague here. We don't know if Joel is describing a literal series of events that sort of happen one after the other. And if he is, we don't know what kind of time frame he's talking about. Is this sort of six weeks, six months, six years? Or is he speaking in code? Is it sort of more metaphor and poetry and... Or is it a literal blow-by-blow -blow series of accounts? Are these locusts actual locusts? Or is it just another way, a poetic way of describing this army of soldiers where there's so many of them coming that it feels like locusts? Or are these soldiers actually soldiers? Or are they actually locusts and there's so many locusts that it feels like they've been hit with an army? See, we actually don't quite know. We don't know, but it, it also doesn't really matter. 
see, as a prophet, he could be doing that kind of prophet thing where he picks the symbolism and he kind of brings together a whole bunch of events in Israel's history and helps us see this one event through the lens of all of them and helps us see all the events through the lens of this one. See, the long and the short here is that God has sent incredible trouble and turmoil on the people of Judah. Why? Because he needed to do something drastic to wake them up from their drunken stupor. Have a look at verse 5. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail. See, why are they in this situation? Well, we know as God's people, God had promised that actually if they followed his covenant, if they treasured him, they didn't run after other gods, they obeyed his laws, well then actually they wouldn't have any trouble. They would have a perfect, wonderful, blessed time in God's special place. And God had promised, he'd warned, if you disobey my covenant, if you abandon me, if you're unfaithful to me and run after other gods, well then actually I'm going to bring on you the same kinds of plagues they had in Egypt. I will bring nations, I will bring fire, I will bring famine. And so Judah is in this situation because of their own sin. Because they have rejected God and the covenant he made with him. They didn't listen to all the gentle warnings that God had sent along the way. And so now comes the slap in the face. So Joel calls them to respond. Verse 5, wake up. Verse 8, mourn. Like, like a widow who lost her husband before she got to say, I do. Verse 11, despair. Wail, grieve. Verse 13, put on sackcloths and mourn and wail. Declare a fast, verse 14. Call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all, and cry out to the Lord. So this turmoil was a warning to wake them up from the deadliness of their sin. To turn their hearts so they would grieve over their sin. That they would see just how horrendous and heinous and evil and detestable their sin is. And they would lament it and call out to God for mercy. See, turmoil had come already. But actually, Joel warns there's more to come. Verse 15, alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. That's pretty terrifying words, isn't it? Especially when you consider what Joel has just described. Like, how does it get much worse than that? And what's left? All the food's been eaten, and then what was left got burned. Then an army invaded, you know. What, is, what, is, what more destruction could come? And that's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? And for us, a God, the God who is love, 
the God who is faithful to his people, the God who saved and redeemed them, now warns that destruction, even worse than what's already happened, is coming. See, this day of the Lord is a day of judgment, a day of giving sin what sin deserves, a day that has been mentioned numerous times by the prophets throughout the scriptures. Now, it's possible here that Joel is talking uh, about just a specific day of judgment, a day of the Lord uh, in Israel's history. Uh, A strong possibility here is uh, actually the sacking of Jerusalem by the Babylonians uh, in 598 and 588 BC. So it's possible here that when Joel says the day of the Lord is near, he's talking about a historical day of the Lord for Israel, kind of like a little mini fulfilment and pointer to the ultimate day of the Lord. But he could actually just be speaking of the ultimate final day of the Lord, where all people from all nations will be gathered before God and judgment will happen. We know that day will be terrifying. We know that destruction on that day will be total. And definitely in the coming chapters of Joel, uh, we do move from the now situation, the then situation of Judah, to that final judgment day. But either way here, whether Joel is talking about a judgment, day of judgment or the day of judgment, the dynamic is the same. The turmoil that Judah's already going through is kind of like a warning shot, fired and designed to wake them up and bring them to repentance before the devastating day of the Lord comes. See, all of the locusts, the army, the fire, all of the tragedy and disaster that they're enduring is a bit like that slap in the face or that cold glass of water to the drunk person. That drastic attempt to grab their attention and get them to act and jump to safety. That's what all this turmoil is about. And that helps us see that actually this suffering, this turmoil that they're going through is is actually God's kindness to them. It's actually his love to them to go to extreme lengths to wake them up and warn them of the danger to come, to call them to repent and turn and ask for forgiveness. God is acting for their good through the turmoil. Now, we don't actually know because we don't know exactly when this happened. We actually don't know how Judah responded. We don't know if they ignored Joel. We don't know if they repented. But we can see how the Israel have responded in the long term, which brings us today to now and the turmoil that has already happened. You'll see there a second reading in your uh, little handouts uh, in Luke chapter 19. I just want to direct your attention there. Here, Jesus, 
was walking in the first century BC, walking on his way to Jerusalem. And he actually picks up some very similar themes that we find in Joel 1. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus wept because Israel refused to weep. Jesus wept because he was so devastated that these people who God had loved, had built, had established, had blessed, had given incredible promises, had turned their backs on God, had refused to wake up and weep over their sin and had been so blind drunk with their sin that when God himself came to them, and walked among them and performed incredible miracles and spoke words of God and wisdom that no one could argue with. Even then, they missed him. They did not recognize him. They rejected him. See, at this stage, they were already in turmoil because of their sin. Already they had no king on the throne. Already they were under foreign Roman rule. Already they were weak and marginalised. And here God had sent his only son as the life raft to rescue them from the dreadful day of the Lord that is coming. To rescue them from that judgement. And how did he do that? Well, he did that through another dreadful day of the Lord. A dreadful day where God poured out the full extent of his wrath against the sin of mankind. A day where someone stood under the devastating wrath of God. And yet he stood in our place and took our punishment. They didn't recognize what would bring them peace. Jesus brought peace by his death. See, Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they were still blind to what he was doing and that what he was doing through his death and resurrection was the one thing that would heal them. Instead of weeping over Jesus' death, they celebrated. And just like they'd rejected God's original covenant, now they rejected his new covenant through Jesus. And Jesus here, he tips his hat, he prophesies that actually because of this, the temple, uh, the city will be destroyed. Sounding very similar to our Joel passage, isn't it? 
And it's exactly what happened in 70 AD. The Babylonians came, ah, sorry, not the Babylonians, <laughs> the Romans came and destroyed the city and the temple. And so today, as we look at the people of Israel, we see plenty of turmoil, don't we? In their history, plenty of conflict and oppression. But what if we look away from Israel to the rest of the world? When I was in Year 9, um, I was, I've always been into bikes and um, we used to build jumps. And I don't know if I've told you this story, but uh, we, built these, we built these big jumps and you build a big up ramp and then you build a big down ramp. And we'd built a big up ramp and we hadn't built a down ramp yet. And um, I thought I'd test it anyway. And uh, I didn't go so well. I landed on my head and I crushed my third vertebra and broke my neck. Um, I wasn't very happy about it at the time, I'll tell you that much. Uh, but actually, this little turmoil in my life was exactly the wake-up call that I needed. It was the thing that stopped me, made me reflect on the fact that actually my days will come to an end one day and they almost came to an end much shorter than I thought. And then I will face the Lord. The day of the Lord is near. And I realised actually that I was running in this way and I needed to turn around and come back to God. See, this world that we live in is in the tragedy and turmoil it's in because of our human sin. All the suffering, the war, the sickness, the poverty and the death and the injustice and the slavery and the infertility and the turmoil, all of it is a result of our sin, yours, mine, Adam's, everyone's. And, and actually these terrible things are God's warning shots, warning us that everything is not okay. Our sin is deadly serious. We need to have peace with God because the day is coming. See, the turmoil is still to come. I think actually that imagery uh, in verse 8 is really helpful. I think there, have a look at verse 8. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. See, living in light, what does it look like to live in light of the coming day of the Lord? Well, it means living like someone who's engaged, waiting for that day when they'll be married. And they've got that anticipation, the hopefulness. But also there's an appropriate kind of fear and respect, a desire to live right and honour that marriage, a desire not to cheapen it or degrade it in any way, but to live faithful for, the day, to, for that day that is coming. And that's how we need to live as God's people. Knowing that the final day is coming. Knowing that Jesus, the one who saved us, is also the one who comes in glory to judge. We live with that expectation and hope, but also that fear to honour him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we read this. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. 
Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. See, living knowing that the day of the Lord is near means we live knowing that our thoughts, our actions will be revealed for what they are. It means realising that actually many of our thoughts and actions are actually pretty awful. And it means weeping and wailing over that sin and crying out to God to forgive us and change us. Our last point, wake up and weep. Now, 13 times uh, in Joel 1, we're told to weep, to wail, to mourn, to despair, to fast, to wear sackcloth. Now, I think for us in a society where we prize happiness, you know, kind of almost more than anything else, it's kind of a, an alien and a scary thought for us to think, actually, I should be weeping. I should be mourning. I should be sorrowful. I should, should be grieving. See, we're conditioned, aren't we, to avoid any of those things. We're conditioned when we feel down to distract ourselves and convince ourselves everything's okay. We're conditioned not to dwell on the sadness or the grief, but to focus on something else. That's what our news feeds do. They redirect us from the serious and heavy, give us a minute or two there, and then direct us off to something trivial and entertaining. You know, our news, uh, our news uh, channels don't show real news all the time because it would just be so depressing, wouldn't it? And so we pad out the tragedies and the turmoil with celebrity news and sports and, and, and all sorts of things, funny videos and politics, which is a joke as well. <laughs> See, we're conditioned, aren't we, not to dwell, not to reflect on the fact that actually deep down we know we're sinful and we don't stack up. We're conditioned to put that aside, tell ourselves that we're fine. And yet God says, stop. Wake up. Wail. Grieve. Mourn. Cry out to God. For our own sin. But also for the condition of our world. We need to stop and weep and wail over, over the poverty and the fighting. And the injustice and the loneliness and the hatred and the death and the sickness and the slavery. We need to weep and wail over the fact that so many countless millions are slowly heading towards that day, one day at a time. And they will face the destruction of the Lord for how they have lived and sinned and not accepted Jesus. And many of those haven't even heard. And so I want to leave you with a couple of questions. When did you last just sit down and dwell in the turmoil of this world and cry out to the Lord? When did you last fast and pray that God would bring justice and salvation? When did you last take time to just stop and reflect and grieve and pray about your part 
in this messy world, about your sin and how it's part of the reason why this world is as it is. When did you last dwell on the fact that your sin is so serious that the only way for God to deal with it was to pour out his wrath on his own son? To us the Lord says, wake up, weep and fast. Cry out to the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near.